Hi, this is Camus. Welcome to this week's episode of God is Real, God is Good, a podcast where we tell stories about how we know God is real and good in our lives. So today I have Leah with me, Leah Truant, and like so many people, I met her at Alaka, and Leah's job at Alaka is very unique, but I really love it. She is responsible for pouring into the female leaders here at Alaka. She just is like a mentor. She prays with them and just talks with them about what they're going through. And I think it's a really amazing aspect of Christianity that I'm like just in love with right now. So <laughs> hi, Leah, and thank you for coming. So why don't you tell us where you're from? My name is Leah, like Kim has said, and I um, was born in Indiana. Um, but I did a lot of moving around as a child, so I don't claim one state as home. Um, I lived in Missouri and Texas and Illinois and just kind of all over. Um, currently, our residency is in Florida, and that's where we've been for the past seven years. That's nice. Yes, so. <laughs> so why don't you tell us a little bit about your religious background growing up? Um, I was raised in a non-denominational Christian church home. Um, I was very religious growing up. I was raised into a family um, where my grandfather was a minister and my mom was a PK. Um, my father made the decision um, after I was born um, that he wanted to be a minister as well. Um, so I was raised in that very Christian culture of having um, a minister as a dad. We were missionaries for a while, um, grandparents, um, even my brother, who's a half-sibling. His um, biological father um, was also a minister, and his grandparents were ministers as well. And I was raised um, with his grandparents adopting me into their family and calling me their own. Um, so I had it, I felt, on all sides growing up. Very deep religious roots. Very deep religious roots, yes. Yeah. Definitely. So I'm sure that obviously affected you and how you came to Christ. So why don't you tell us your story about how, as you were saying, telling me a little bit earlier, not so much how you knew that God was real, but like your moment when you realized he was good and he kind of became like a permanent part of your life. Well, my story is very interesting. Um, I always knew God was real mm -hmm. in the sense of it was very, um, you know, I was born and bred into it. I never doubted it at all. Mm -hmm. um, I could see his goodness and I believed every bit of it. I never questioned it in any form. Um, I made the personal decision to walk with the Lord um, at the age of 11. Um, and unlike some, it was not a wishy-washy thought. It was very real to me. Um, I meant what I had said. Um, and really, I tried to the best of my ability to walk in that statue and, and follow him um, every day mm -hmm. kind of a thing. Yeah, that's pretty impressive for a young person because I, so I grew up in a very similar, well, not similar religious background. My parents converted to the faith, but I grew up in a Christian home and I never doubted God's existence. And when I became baptized, it was definitely something I very meant, mm -hmm. but like we all do like periods of still lukewarmness because I was 14 and like, mm -hmm. I guess you don't understand the gravity still or, yeah, I don't know. You just and I, I definitely see where I've grown. 
mm-hmm. right? Like where I am today, um, and hopefully, you know, the Lord keeps growing me, um, compared to where I was, obviously I was not yeah. as grounded um, and maybe like doctrinally <laughs> correct or whatever, but it was not out of a lack of wanting to know the Lord. I really was genuine and tried to the best of my knowledge that I had of him mm-hmm. to follow him That's in awesome. those moments. So I'm sure you have some stories or stories I do. that you were... My um, testimony, which I had said to you, is I don't think a testimony is necessarily your come to Jesus moment, even though that's usually what we hear. Mm -hmm. Um, It is the testimony of what God has done in your life. And so for for me, um, I did walk with the Lord Mm -hmm. and I felt very strongly about him and I really did try to obey him. And part of that for us in our journey, as I'm married, I have um, currently five beautiful children. (laughs) Um, When we first got married, we talked about it and we always wanted to adopt. And we saw adoption um, very clearly laid out in scripture Mm -hmm. that one, it was something that we were called to, to care for the orphans and the widows, as it says in James. Um, but we also saw it as a beautiful thing of like Christ adopted us. Like we were grafted into his family tree. Um, and I think that there's a call in our lives to do the same for those in this world. Mm Mm-hmm. And so we always talked about it. We always wanted to adopt. That was the plan. The adoption was never the um, secondary route. Like we couldn't have kids. So therefore we fell into adoption. It was always the plan from the moment we got together, Ian and I. And so um, one of the things was in Ian's background, he worked with troubled youth. And he said, I don't want to adopt though until we've already had some children of our own. He felt like that was a very important thing so that the adopted kids did not feel um, like maybe they weren't loved. Mm-hmm. And so we needed to have our own in order to love a child. He wanted it to be, we wanted them. And so we brought them in, not because something was missing, but because we really wanted them. You wanted them to feel like it wasn't like, oh, we can't have kids. So that's why yeah. we got you. But like, we already have them, but we just want you. Yeah. So we, in our wonderful American way, had a plan. And our plan was to have four biological children. Mm-hmm. And then stop having biological children, and we would adopt two. Uh-huh. Um, and everything about the plan seemed fantastic. It made sense in our minds, and it looked beautiful on paper. Yeah. Um, <laughs> as plans <laughs> usually do, but nothing ever goes according to plan, um, as we ser- soon learned. And so for us, um, we had our four children, mm-hmm. and we decided we looked through all the different um, birth control methods because um, that's what you do. Yeah. And um, because I'm a very fertile person, like I, it, Ian winks at me and I'm pregnant. And so we knew that if we were going to do four and then stop, we needed to put something in place. And so based upon many reasonings one is obviously we don't believe in abortion yeah um i also did not they had for other medical reasons had put me on some hormones at one point in my life and it 
made me absolutely crazy. So we were against hormonal things. Mm -hmm. Um, So what we landed on was um, a copper IUD, which does not have hormones. And it's just kind of like a barrier. So nothing ever gets fertilized kind of a thing. And we felt in our conscience that that was an okay option. Yeah. Um, And so we had it. Everything was working great. And we started the process of adoption. Um, And so for us, we looked through every single country that you are able to adopt from. Um, Each country has their own rules. So for some, um, you can't have any children. For some, um, maybe you need to make so much money or you need to be of a certain ethnic background. Hmm. So we weighed all of those things in. We found the ones that we were eligible to adopt from. And we originally landed on Hong Kong. And we started the process, um, fell in love with a little girl because they're like, oh, look through the website and find (laughs) kids. And we found a kid and she seemed absolutely perfect. And we were sending in our forms um, and we received a phone call um, explaining to us that one, she had already been chosen for somebody else. And two, we could continue with Hong Kong. But the reality is, is the way the system works in Hong Kong, they would never choose us because we had four children. And so they suggested that we pick a different country. Really? Really. Hmm. So we were heartbroken. Mm -hmm. You know, you fall in love with these kids. Yeah. Um, So we went back to the drawing board and started looking and we're talking to our caseworker and they all say, South Africa is where you need to go. Um, South African children, um, the only ones that are eligible are Zulu children. Um, so that's the like native African tribe. So like okay. South Africans, there's white South Africans and there's black, black South, South Africans. Africans. Um, no white South Africans are ever available. It's only the black tribal ones that are available. Okay. Which we don't care about. Yeah. We said whatever. Um And so we started looking into it. We did so much praying and we agreed to do things like children with HIV Mm -hmm. and it really seemed like it was going to be a good fit and we'd be able to get a kid. Um, The problem was um, the first off, all countries have an amount of time that you need to be in country to receive your children. So when you take into account the adoption cost for the agency and the adoption cost for United States and the adoption cost for South Africa and then travel and then the stay there and the travel home and all those kinds of things, it would have cost us $50,000 to adopt. Wow. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. Um, but we had complete faith mm-hmm. that the Lord could do it. If he parted the waters of the Red Sea, if he made the sun stand still, which we believe are truth, um, why could he not make $50,000 appear? Yeah, he can do that. He can do that. So we did all the classes. We got certified to be able to adopt internationally, and we did all the classes about bringing home international kids and dealing with HIV and black hair care and all of those wonderful things. Um, and the money was not coming in. Mm-hmm. There were wonderful people, um, but not $50,000 worth of people. 
at the time we were going to a huge mega church, which if anyone knows us now, um, that's completely everyone's shocked when they hear that we went to a mega church because that is not our personalities no, at all. Not at all. <laughs> no. And this was a big one. It was over five thousand people were oh, wow. the regular attendance. Um, and we were there for a very long time to the point of we were known by all the staff. Oh, wow. And so, like, if you're known by all the staff of a church of 5,000 people, like, we were involved. Yeah, right? you would have to be. We were leaders of, sm- like, Bible studies. And we were a part of small groups there. And I was a leader of some women's ministries. And... Like, we had our hands. If the church doors were open, we were there serving. Um, Never once did we ask the church for money. Um, What we did ask, though, was, one, for prayer. Mm -hmm. Um, And we really wanted to be able to share what we were doing with the church because we feel like that's the purpose of the church, is there to spur one another on towards love and good deeds, as the scripture says. Amen. and so, and we never pushed it. Mm-hmm. Um, like we had t-shirts made up. And so if someone saw our t-shirt that we were wearing, we would explain it to them like before service started or something like that. Um, but we were multiple times asked to be quiet, to keep our mouth shut, that we weren't allowed to talk about what we were doing, um, that we weren't allowed to share what we were saying to people, like pulled aside from people and told this information. Really? While you were in church? Yeah. Hmm. And so um, there was a moment where maybe it got the better of me. (laughs) (laughs) And I was really upset. Mm -hmm. And um, if you're trying to do these grand things for God, Mm -hmm. but you're not allowed to share it with God's people, Like, that was just a very lonely road to walk. Um, And so I wrote this long email, and I sent it to every single staff member. Whether you were the main minister or the janitor, you received this email. Because I didn't want it swept under the rug, Mm -hmm. as so many things had been done for us. Um, We got in huge trouble. Got called into the principal's office, as my dad says. (laughs) Um, sat down with an elder and one of their ministers and were informed that God would never ask us to do this because we didn't have $50,000 and God wouldn't ask you to do something if you weren't capable of doing it. Um, so a lot of words were said in this meeting. <laughs> yes, that's a very interesting viewpoint of theirs. Isn't it? Yeah. So there was a lot of stuff said. And and that being said, the church is filled with wonderful people. Amen. Um, And so we're not pointing fingers at any person. We love the people. We still um, have a semi-relationship with the congregation. Um, But that was just our moment of realizing we needed to leave that particular congregation. Mm -hmm. Um, And we did. We felt very alone. Like if we couldn't go to our church body and ask for prayer... That was a very hard thing to yeah. walk through. I mean, if you can't ask your church family for prayer, who can you ask for prayer? Yeah. Like, 
And like I said, we had our small group and they were awesome. And obviously they were praying for us. So it's not that no one was praying for us. It wasn't that no one was supporting us. It was just more the like larger congregation as a whole. We weren't allowed to go and speak what we were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not trying to badmouth them in yeah, yeah. any way whatsoever. But it was just time for you to move on and go. It was and time it for us to move on. But it definitely made the experience harder. Like here we had already had the struggle of one country and here we're in another one and we're really struggling with them. Mm-hmm. Um, so it caused us again to kind of like re-examine what we're doing and we're talking to our caseworker and when we're saying like, we just don't have the money. And so they said, well, we're starting a new program and we think you guys would be perfect for it. And so we were really excited, and what they were doing was domestic. It was adopting children from the foster system. Um, So it wasn't us fostering, because we we all felt, both Ian and I felt, like fostering was not for us. Mm -hmm. Um, Because we had four kids, we didn't want to be bringing in children and and then having to have them ripped away. For us, we just felt like for our family, what we were called to in that season of life was adoption. And so we thought, oh, this is great. It's domestic. We're not having to worry about traveling across the world. Um, It really made things easier. Yeah. So we switched. And the thing with whenever you switch programs, you have to switch everything. It's not as simple as checking a different box. You now need a new home study. You now need to do new training because your training was good for international, but that's not the same as domestic. So now you have to go and take all the training for domestic to get able to do that. Um, a lot of steps involved with it, a lot of money involved with switching because all those things cost money. Mm -hmm. Um, so we did it. We made the switch. We did the classes. Um, the classes were very difficult. Um, you're told constantly because it's a secular government running this. Yeah. And so you're told all the time, um, basically, that you're a horrible person for trying to adopt, that you're ripping apart families, that um, especially the majority of people who do adoptions mm-hmm. are um, Christian. And so with that being said, they're very big into pointing fingers and saying, like, you're not here to convert children. You're not here to, um, like, if you end up getting placed with a Muslim kid, it's not up to your Muslim neighbor to take them to the mosque. You have to take them to the mosque. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just that, like, really a lot of hatred towards conservative Christianity. And they're very angry that we're the ones doing, uh, all doing it. Yeah. So... We switch, we go through the hardship of, like, tears of being told how horrible people we are. Um, And we do it, we're certified, and we start looking. And we realize that in the United States, they don't want us to adopt. Hmm. We looked through every single state's website of children yeah and they all want it to be the only child in the house and we had four so that won't work 
Really? Like they don't want you to have children already? No. So that's on there where it says, um, you know, here's Billy. He's 10 years old. Needs to be the only child in the household. Really? And then you go to Susan, eight years old. Needs to be the only child in the household. And that's how they are pretty much the entire way through. Wow. And we had four kids. There was nothing to be done about that. Mm -hmm. um, and we had some, some of those stipulations aren't on there. If you get older, we, for the safety of our children, yeah. we wanted our eldest child to remain the eldest. So we said, it doesn't need to be our youngest, but she needs to remain our oldest kid for her mental state, mm -hmm. for her safety. We just really felt like that was an important aspect. Mm -hmm. my, and go ahead. My parents, they looked into fostering children because mm -hmm. we were older and it was something they felt more comfortable just fostering them. Mm -hmm. And they were very strict on the stipulation that they wanted. My youngest brother, they didn't want anyone older than him. Yeah. Because of like different maturity levels and things, they thought it'd be best for our family. And like as a parent, you know what's best for your family. Right. And that's a big thing, too, is they don't want to give a placement out of birth order. And our youngest, when we started it, we started mm -hmm. at him being one. So by the time we're into domestic, he was about two, mm -hmm. two and a half. So trying to find someone younger than two oh. is not done, yeah. right? Um, because everyone wants the babies. Mm-hmm. Um, and we said we would go up to eight years old, like that's an older child, even, you know, by the system, anything older than seven. Mm -hmm. Um, but because they want the kids to be the only ones, we realized we didn't fall into that unless the kid was like basically on their deathbed. Oh, wow. And we did not feel capable of, of caring for that situation because we had four other children. We wanted them to get the love and support they needed, and we did not feel like we were able to do that. Yeah. So once again, um, after talking with our caseworkers, um, you know, we're explaining. You said we'd be perfect. Mm -hmm. We're not eligible for any of these kids. And for two, one was a sibling set, and mm -hmm. one was a single kid. We got very close. We had put in the stuff. We had moved on multiple levels. We were excited. We were looking at flights. And then because we had four kids, they ended up getting placed elsewhere. Oh. So again, you're going through that heartbreak mm -hmm. of thinking that you're going to be getting these kids. So our caseworker goes, oh, well, of course you're not good for this program. But we have a program that you're perfect for. We have the infant adoption program. You'd be perfect for it because obviously, like, it would fall underneath. Mm -hmm. They would be, it's a mother choosing your family, so it's not the government controlling anything. I'm very upset and angry at this point in my life. <laughs> yes. And so I asked the question. I said, okay, let's pretend we do this. What does that honestly involve mm -hmm. well that involves a new home study and that involves new training and I said I've gone through international training I've gone through domestic training and I've raised four kids what more training do I need 
to adopt a baby. Like, yeah, this doesn't make sense. Oh, well, you have to do this training, and I think you'll find it really informational. And I said, okay, again, like, let's just be honest before we go through all of this. What is the likelihood mm-hmm. of this being a thing? Come to find out, we wouldn't be chosen because we have four kids. They're, the moms are going to choose people who don't have children. Mm-hmm. And because of abortion in America, there actually aren't enough infants out there to meet the, the amount of adoptive parents that are waiting. Wow. There's a huge waiting list of parents who want kids and there's not enough children really to go around, which is not the story we're told um, by any means. No. Um, So all these mothers are aborting their children when really there are more people waiting with open arms. Mm -hmm. So I'm very frustrated. I'm very upset. And this was my moment where I really, for the first time in my life, struggled with the Lord and questioning a lot of things. And I went up to Ian, my husband, and I said that I'm not doubting that there is a God, Mm -hmm. but I'm wondering if he set the clock and walked away. Because why would we be trying to do this thing for him? And it's not panning out. Like, I'm not trying to raise $50,000 for myself. I'm not trying to bring a kid in to make myself feel good. Like, I'm fully aware of the struggles that would be in my life. Yeah. Um, It solely was out of devotion to him. And so I I don't understand why it's not working out. And I said, there's only two ways that I feel like I can work through this. I said, one way is... I struggle through this and I, I come to the end of the tunnel and I say, okay, there is a God. He created the world. I think there's enough evidence for that. I'm not questioning that in any sense, mm-hmm. but I say he walked off and now everything is just happening haphazardly. I said, or and like that kills your faith. Like if we're being yeah. honest, I can't believe the rest of it. If I think he walked away. Cause that's kind of like a God that doesn't care. Like, yeah. Hey, I made you. But you got to sort out your own life. Right. But I really was at that point of saying, is that the truth of the matter? Mm -hmm. Or I said, I believe he's in control of everything. There can't be any more walking the fence of he's in control of some things and he's not in control of other things. Either he's fully in charge or he's not in charge of all. That's the only two options I can see walking out from this. Mm Mm-hmm. And so he allowed me that time, my husband, to walk through that of deciding where I stood in my belief system. And he was patient with me, and I really sought the Lord. I I sought him through prayer. I sought him through reading his word and throwing out my fleece and saying, you know, are you here or are you not? And the time came where I made my decision, and I decided that he was in control, and he was in control of everything, even the horrible things that I felt like were going on through me, that he was orchestrating it all. Like, you know, it shows in Scripture that nothing 
can happen to us unless it goes through God's hands first, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's a reason why he would allow that to pass through his hands to reach me. So I said, okay, Lord, like you allowed this to happen. I feel like you had to have done it for a reason, for your glory. I don't understand what that is. Um, but there have got to be things that I've taken control of that I need to hand back to you. Because if you're in control of everything, then you're in control of everything. So what does that mean? Mm-hmm. And he laid it out for me that I had taken away the number of children I had from him. That he allowed me for many years um, the false sense of control of bearing children. And he brought to my attention that there have been plenty of people who have never used birth control who have never gotten pregnant. And there's plenty of people who were using birth control and have gotten pregnant. And he allowed me to pretend like I was in control of that when it was really him. And he needed to teach me that he was in control of everything so that I would willingly um, lay that part of my life at his feet. Trying to take, like, not to like misinterpret you, but you had made up this plan for your life, and you were walking in it. And he's like, "Leah, I can make your plan perfect, or I can do it my way, and I can make it better." Yeah. So kind of just you know saying, "God, you know, like this is my plan, but ultimately you have control of my life." Right. And he needed to bring me a place like of total submission. And when I was eleven, I thought I gave him that. But there's so many aspects where the world got in the way and I listened to its voice. And I thought, oh, it's fine. Yeah. Um when it's not necessarily his way. And he needed to teach me. And I see other things from that time. Um we tried to adopt for three years of our life. Oh wow. We were walking that road. That's a long time. That is a really long time. It's a really long time. And so especially for our youngest, we started the journey when he was one. So up until he was four, like that's all he knew was mommy and daddy are trying to adopt kids. Like that was his whole life, you mm-hmm. know? And many great things happened in that. Actually, through it, my parents ended up adopting. So they are the proud parents of a seven-year-old. And my dad just turned 71. And my mom will be turning 59 this year. And so, um, you know, the Lord didn't have for us to bring a kid into our home. But that doesn't mean adoption was not a part of our family. Mm. Because it happened. It just happened through my parents. And it was only because we started that journey. Wow. Um, But that brings me to now I have an IUD in my body. And God wants complete control of my life. Mm -hmm. And I have a husband. (laughs) (laughs) So this is the part. It might get graphic. So I'm really sorry. But here we go with the real story. Um, which was now I felt like I needed to explain that to my husband. And so I said, you were patient with me. Here's where I landed. And here's where I think God is calling me. And I do not believe anymore that birth control is okay. Because I think that if I gave my life to Christ, he asked for all of it. And I need to lay it all at his feet. Mm -hmm. And either I trust that he has the best plan for my life, um, or I don't. Either he knows how much I can handle or he doesn't. And I feel like I've robbed him of that position in my life. 
So of course my husband is looking at me because he knows how fertile I am. And that in his mind, he's like, great. Now we're going to have like 15 kids (laughs) and we're a one income family at this time. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, what does that mean? I kept saying like, obviously God knows our financial state. Obviously God knows time-wise what we can handle. Like, again, like, are we just robbing God of his sovereignty by feeling like we know better about what we can handle? And I told him, I said, every time in scripture, children are mentioned, it is always a blessing. Mm -hmm. Never once is it a curse or a bad thing. Every single time it is a blessing from the Lord whenever you have a child. So are we robbing God of our blessings? And so, you know, he's logically trying to figure this is like his <laughs> wife just hands him the spot shell. And he says the famous last words of, well, if that's what God wants, he's going to have to prove it to me. Oh, <laughs> Which never tests the Lord in such ways because he will show himself faithful in that. Um, So this IUD was in me for four years, never one issue. And Mm -hmm. if ever you're going to have an issue with an IUD, it's always within the first year that something could possibly go wrong and they need to fix it. Mm -hmm. Never a problem. Few days after, not even a week after Ian says this, we're sitting watching this family movie and I start feeling like someone is stabbing me. And I'm looking at it and I go, something is terribly wrong. Mm-hmm. So I'm, you know, in our bedroom trying to figure out what is going on, why I'm in such pain. You know, he's getting worried because I've been in there for so long because I don't know what's happening. I just feel like I'm being murdered. And he's knocking on the door. Would you mind if I come in? And I said, okay. And I said, I don't know what's going on. And he's like, well, would you mind if I, you know, kind of like look around and see like what's going on? I said, okay. And into his hand drops my IUD. Oh, wow. It just came out. It just dropped out. Oh, wow. And that was the pain is it was coming out and it lands in Ian's hands. Wow. So we're staring at it. You can't do anything but laugh in that moment. Yeah. And kind of a, well, I I guess that's our answer. Mm -hmm. That the Lord wants that control. And so here we are in our surety of ourselves. And we're like, well, I guess next month we're going to get a positive pregnancy test. (laughs) And next month rolls around and no positive pregnancy test. And the next month rolls around and no positive pregnancy test. And the next month rolls around and no positive pregnancy test. And again, I just felt like it was the Lord saying like, do you trust that I am in control or do you still think it's you? Mm -hmm. So finally, I again have to, all right, you're in control. And then we come to find out, I went on a family trip to go see some extended family I come home and there's a positive pregnancy test so of course we're over the moon we've now gotten full on board with this thing like we're gonna have like tons of children (laughs) it's gonna be amazing (laughs) and um I've scheduled my first doctor's appointment 
And then before that can happen, I start bleeding. Hmm. And so we go in to an emergency clinic and they do an ultrasound and they inform me there's nothing there. And that um, they diagnosed it as something called a blighted ovum, which means that basically um, there was a fertilized egg, but it never developed into an embryo. So it made the uterus into a home. Mm -hmm. I ended up with a placenta, but it was an empty placenta. And so the hormones were there because there was a placenta and they felt like it was growing something, but it was empty. Um, a blighted ovum, you can go all the way through your first trimester before your body realizes that there's nothing there. So their suggestion was that I go to my OBGYN and have them perform a DNC, which is basically them scraping it all out. It's, it's what they do for abortions. Mm -hmm. We're devastated. Yeah. Um, here, you know, we thought we were having this baby. We were all ready. And so um, it's one of those things where they're like, you never know when your body's going to realize it's not pregnant. So maybe just stay at home until you can get into the doctor for them to perform the procedure because you don't want to be in Target and then you miscarry kind of a thing. Yeah. So I'm at home. I'm mourning. And the Lord just keeps reminding me of that because... I'm on a couch hugging a bucket because I have all those hormones going through me. And you're like, if it'd be nice if it was worth for something, right? Instead, <laughs> I just feel sick. Um, and the Lord just keeps saying, like, who's in control? Like, I am the author of life and death. Mm. Like, again, you thought you were controlling something. And we go into the doctor. And sure enough, there's nothing there. And he who... <laughs> as far as I understand, is not a religious man, said, you know what, I'm, I'm not ready to call it yet, though. I don't want to rush into this. Um, I'd rather give it some time. Mm -hmm. So let's do a hormone test. Let's see where your hormone levels are, again, in comparison to where they were at the emergency clinic. Let's wait a week, do another ultrasound. Okay, so I go through another week of hugging a bucket, go in the next week. Still nothing. Mm -hmm. I'm still not ready to call it. Let's wait another week. Let's go through it. You know, we're sitting there watching empty ultrasounds. Like, and the Lord is just saying, like, how much do you trust me, Leah? Like, you keep saying, like, I gave you everything. Did you really give me everything? Like, I need to know you gave me everything. So I'm, you know, having to make peace with it all. So we went back multiple times, um, and they finally are going, and he's performing another ultrasound, and it's empty, it's empty, it's empty, and they're about ready to finish, and they go up for a second, still don't see anything, but they see a beep, and there, hidden in the corner, is a heartbeat. Aww. And we're all, what was that? <laughs> um... And so they're like, come back next week. <laughs> and we come back next week and there's a heartbeat. Um, and so it's one of those things like pregnancy wise is that I did not ovulate when they felt like I should ovulate. Mm -hmm. um, so I was farther 
So they weren't seeing it because they thought I was this many weeks when really I was only like, I was way farther back. I was like a month off. Oh, really? Yeah. And so they're, you know, finally, you know, we, we hear a heartbeat and we see a baby. Um, and it's so teeny tiny and perfect. Um, and we're elated and we go through this pregnancy. Um, there were moments in the pregnancy where, you know, I had some more bleeding, so they had to watch and make sure, but really everything looked fantastic. And so we get excited. It's this beautiful baby girl. We're all so happy. Um, I am large. If anyone has seen me in my normal state, I'm this teeny, teeny, tiny, barely 100 pounds person. Mm -hmm. I am 140 plus pounds when I'm pregnant. It's all in front. I'm massive <laughs> and highly uncomfortable. Um, and we go past the due date. And so they're like, okay, we, we really want to get the baby out just to make sure everybody is safe. And I say no drugs. And they say, okay, we'll just break your water because I had been doing a whole lot of contracting. They say, we think that's all that you need is just that little push. Mm -hmm. So we go in for it. Um, you know, and we're thanking the Lord that he is in control of life and death. Um, I'm telling them, you know, I want this natural delivery and it's going to be perfect. So they break my water. Um, and I have delivered up until this point four children. Mm -hmm. I have done some with medication and I have done natural. Um, so I know both aspects. I know what it feels like on both ends of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. And something was different with this one. And I don't know why. Well, I do now. But you didn't at the know time, why. I didn't know why. <laughs> but I'm looking at Ian, and I am just yelling out the name of Jesus in the midst of it. Mm -hmm. And I keep telling him, I need him here. Like, he needs to be here. And, he, you know, Ian's been with me for four pregnancies and four deliveries. And he's like, he's, well, he is here, honey. Like, mm -hmm. like, you don't need... And I said, no, like, I need him here. Like, he needs to be here. And so it comes time to deliver. I really feel like it's time. They tell me to stop because it's not time. And then it's time. Um, and I am in agony. And again, I've delivered naturally and I know what that feels like. And this was different. Mm -hmm. And I deliver a beautiful baby girl. Um, and I am writhing and screaming out in pain. And um, that beautiful moment of where they placed the baby on a mom, I did not get with her. Mm -hmm. um, it was a matter of um, screaming at my husband to hurry up and take off his shirt so he can hold our baby. Um, and the placenta won't come out. Okay. And the cord breaks. And there's no way to get it out. And I am screaming. Um, and I don't scream. <laughs> um, and they have to rush me out mm -hmm. um, and put me under. And the doctor is not happy because, one, I did do a natural delivery. So I am feeling everything. Mm -hmm. And he has to go in um, with his hands and manually scrape out my placenta mm. and try to get it. And I'm still in lots of pain. And I'm waking up from being under anesthesia. 
And I can hear them, like, if you've ever been under anesthesia, like, you can hear things before you can see things. <laughs> um, so I can't open my eyes, but I can hear what's going on, and I can feel the pain in my body. Mm-hmm. And I can hear them, like, one nurse talking to another nurse about pushing on my stomach, and one going, why does it look like cottage cheese? And then them saying, that's the blood clots, and we need to try to get them out. And I hear words... Um, being said about what could happen or might happen. Um, and I'm still just in such excruciating pain and the pain isn't stopping and the bleeding and the clotting is not stopping. And they have to put me under again and rush me on again and perform an actual DNC thinking that maybe when he manually did it, he didn't get all the bits of my placenta. And so maybe that's the problem. So they're scraping everything out. Um, at this point, I've lost so much blood. So they're having to give me... Um, blood transfusions. So many transfusions. Um, the pain isn't stopping. They, when they went in to do the DNC, they ended up... Ian knows the word for it. Um, there's this... Like balloon catheter that they put in your uterus to try to put pressure on to cause it to stop bleeding. Yeah. Um, I forget the name of it. Ian knows the name of it. Um, so they, when they did the DNC, they inserted that to try to stop the bleeding. Mm-hmm. In the midst of it, they're giving me all these units of blood. They're giving me so much medication to try to help the pain. Mm-hmm. Um and the doctor comes in and explains to me that, you know, like I'm, I'm losing all this blood. The catheter should work. Um, they're able to measure how much blood is coming out. And they'll give it until noon the next day. If by noon the next day it hasn't stopped, then we need to discuss options. So like hysterectomy. Like hysterectomy and stuff like that. And here we thought we were going to be having these dozens of beautiful children. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm in loads of pain. Um, we had a beautiful lactation consultant come alongside of us because I can't lift my baby. I can't do any of that because I'm under so much medication because of the pain where she's basically having to pump me and nurse for me. Um, with that, Ian's having to nurse through, you know, little drops on his pinky kind of a thing as I'm rushed in and out of surgeries and such. Um, by 8 a.m. the next morning, an entire team, um, both from our town in Claremont and also from Orlando specialist, came in to talk to us. And oh, they wow. said, we can't give you until noon, you'll... We, you don't have that long. Mm. Um, so they said, you have two options before you. One option is that we rush you in and do an emergency hysterectomy. The other option, um, which is what the Orlando team was there to discuss with me, was airlifting me to Arnold Palmer in Orlando. Um, They would go in through my femoral artery Mm -hmm. and basically try to solder my uterus. They said basically the thing was um, was I had placenta accretia, which is where my placenta and my uterus were fused together. So when Mm. my placenta came out, it ripped a hole in my uterus. And so that's what was bleeding. Oh. So there was only two ways to get 
to fix that one is to remove the issue. Mm-hmm. The other one is they would try to like solder it. Yeah. Basically. Like, kind of like cauterize it or like. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, but with that, there were other issues. One is that our daughter, Hadessa, um, was a patient in Claremont. Hmm. And so she would have to stay there until she was discharged and she would not be permitted where I was because it's not a maternity ward. Oh. So we would be separated. That meant the end of nursing. Mm-hmm. Um, other issues involved was anytime you do anything through your femoral artery, there's issues that could be had. Yeah. Such as like, you know, paralyzed. Um, and then the thing too, is they said, we also can't suggest you ever get pregnant again Mm -hmm. because we don't know what will happen. Either your body will just constantly abort the child, Mm -hmm. of course they said miscarry, but, um, or it could cause your death or it could cause like really growth disformity in the child. Um, it's cauterized which means it's a very vascular organ that's very expansive and when you cauterize something it doesn't expand properly so yeah so they had no idea yeah so they said we can't ever suggest you get pregnant again Mm -hmm. well of course ian and i don't believe in a abortion yeah so if we did get pregnant that's not an option for us. Mm-hmm. And we just walked this very long road with the Lord where we felt like he told us that birth control was not okay. So that wasn't an option either. Yeah. So we said, do we gamble it where I could get pregnant and either we're constantly killing our children mm-hmm. or we're, or I'm dying? Or do we remove the option altogether? Yeah. And for us, it was the only thing that made sense. It didn't make sense to keep an organ that wasn't functioning anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't like the idea of the stress of miscarrying children or the thought of me dying or what. Like, we just walked yeah. that road. Um and so we really felt like this was our only option because we didn't want to separate myself from our baby as well. Yeah. Um, so they rushed us in. And had the hysterectomy done. Um, and so, you know, here I am recovering from a vaginal delivery and I'm recovering from a hysterectomy. So it kind of felt like I had a C-section and a vaginal at the same time, which is not a nice place to be. No. Um, and total, um, there was 14 units of blood that had to go into me to keep me alive. Oh, wow. That's, that is a lot. That's a lot of blood. Um, that's like two people's worth. <laughs> that is two people's worth. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of the stipulations on that though, because of what I had gone through, like I wasn't allowed to hold my, like walk around with my baby mm-hmm. for two months. Um, you know, of course I have four other children at home. Like I'm not allowed to be up cooking or cleaning or doing anything. I have to be on bed rest for two months because of what had just happened. Wow. So my mother came to live with us for those two months um, and help. And while I was there um, recovering, it's about a week later after I got home. And I had been in the hospital for a good long time. <laughs> um, but after that... Um, It was the middle of the night, and Ian was sleeping in our bed trying to get some rest. 
And my mom said, you know, why don't you go lay on the couch? And because I wasn't feeling great that day. Like, you know, I just had a whole lot of stuff happen to me. But at the same time, I woke up from a nap and I just was not feeling. Just weren't having a good day. It was just not a good day. So she said, I've got this. I'll hold the baby. Make sure you guys get sleep. I'll get you up for the next feeding. That way you can get some rest. And then I'll just switch with Ian and and you can sleep. Mm -hmm. And... My back was just really hurting me. So I'm trying to lay down and it's uncomfortable. And, but you know, you need sleep. You just delivered a baby and you're going to have to be up in a few hours and all those things we tell ourselves. And I very, very clearly heard the Lord. Um, This was not just like a feeling, a rough estimate. I heard the words from the Lord say, if you lay down, and fall asleep, you will die tonight. Hmm. Okay. So I get up <laughs> and I'm I'm telling my mom, I said, this sounds crazy. And I don't want people to think I'm this weird hypochondriac, like, or I'm needy. Yeah. But I feel like something's wrong. And I, I really do feel like the Lord said, I might die tonight if I don't do something. Mm-hmm. She says, Go wake up, Ian. So I'm telling you, I'm so sorry. Like, I know you need sleep, <laughs> but I, I really did hear the Lord say, you're going to die tonight. So I, I don't want to make something big. Like it could be, it's probably nothing. Yeah. But can we please like go get this check, go out. get this checked out. And so we go and I keep like apologizing to the doctors. Like <laughs> I'm probably a hypochondriac. I'm really sorry. <laughs> Um, turns out I am not a hypochondriac. I had a pulmonary embolism. And if I had laid down to go to sleep that night, either it would go to my heart or it would have gone to my brain. Yeah. So for those that are not medical, like Lee and I are, pulmonary embolism is where you're getting a blood clot in your leg. And if that breaks up and goes smaller like she's saying it can go to your heart you can have a heart attack and it can kill you or it can go to your brain or just so the pulmonary portion was that it's in my lung Hello, thank you yeah well they mainly they travel from legs Legs. up so it would have traveled either from my leg because i had not been able to move there we go um or it could have also been from the incision site. Oh, yeah. And then also, I just had all these units of blood, and they're trying yeah. to keep... This. So there were so many elements. So different places where it could have clotted or mm-hmm. could have caused problems. Absolutely. And so for me, it ended up in my lung, which is why my back hurt, was because I was feeling the pressure of it there. Um, and so I was readmitted to the hospital. <laughs> you poor thing. <laughs> Um, in order to get it to go down, to get onto medication. Um, so again, the Lord just kept like, you thought you were fine and I need you to know I am the one that's in control. I am the author of life and death. Um, and so my baby was born in March and I had to be on Blood thinners until October was when I got yeah. um, free of that. It was a very long time. That was because of everything, because of the type I was placed on um, with having a baby and saying, I will nurse her, so you better find me a medicine that I can <laughs> nurse her with. Yeah. Um, that meant that every single week I had to go to the doctor wow. from March to October. Every week 
I had to go in and get my blood tested to see if it was thin enough or if it was too thick, thick or too thin. Um, it was a special diet because of what they had me on. Yeah. Um, there was a lot involved, but the Lord definitely taught me um, complete reliance on him. And it was actually because of all of that um, and the story that he gave me um, that caused my husband to say, hey, let's sell everything and become traveling missionaries and rely on the Lord. And so here's our life today was actually because of these moments where we said, again, either God is in control or he's not. Mm. And either we take him at his word that he will provide our daily bread um, or we don't believe it. And so kind of he, an all or nothing, all or nothing. And so he had three years through adoption to get us to this place of um, thinking he's in control. And we had, you know, a year and a half of him saying, I'm the author of life and death. Mm -hmm. um, but because of that, now we're on this beautiful journey where we've sold everything we own. We live in an RV with our five beautiful, healthy children. Mm -hmm. um, and we're not with an agency. We truly are just relying on God to be in control. We're relying on him to be the author of every aspect of our life. Um, and it, it took that fear out of we don't need to work at anything. Like he will provide our daily bread. And if we die on the road, well, that was his choice. And he would have had us die at that moment anyways. And so... Um, yeah, that is where we are today, and that is my story. <laughs> well, thank you, Leah. That's that's a beautiful story. Like, I think surrender is so hard for us, like especially as Americans, because we're taught to be very independent and do mm -hmm. your own thing. But like to give up control completely and like that true surrender, yeah. I think that's your story is a valuable lesson for everybody in that. Like, I know I struggle with surrender. But it's, <laughs> it's it's hard. Can we all have those moments, you know, where we want to take that control back and say, wait, it feels better in my hands. <laughs> um, and I think it's hard too, because like I said, like we're so used to allowing culture to influence us as well. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes we can't tell its voice compared to God's voice. And that's not a place where I want to rest in. I want to know his voice and his voice alone. Mm -hmm. um, and to be able to see what the world says as just that. That's just what the world says. Mm -hmm. And not um, follow that path because that's the mainstream path. Yeah, because real Christianity can be radical at times. Like, it's bold and it's in your face. and Yes, it is. It's, it's different. It sets us apart, but in a good way because... Yeah. God is completely different than the world. Yeah. And, well, yeah, he's amazing. Well, thank you for your story. I really loved it. Didn't know it until I listened to it, but <laughs> so often happens, and I just love it. It's, I mean, obviously, I'm not married, and I don't have children, so I can't relate in that aspect, but I can relate to the theme of it, of yeah. surrender. And, yeah. Do you mind if I pray with you before we go? Absolutely. Dear Father in heaven, thank you for Leah. Thank you for her story. This wonderful story of how you are the author of life and death. And you want us to surrender completely to you. All of our plans, just lay them at your feet and just let you be the author of our life and of our story. 
And just thank you for that and for allowing this interview to happen with Leah. And just be with us as we go and we part ways. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Bye.